He believes in equality, individuality, and dignity for all. He has a beautiful gift for creating meditation programs, and he lives what he teaches. He embodies every principle for how to eat, move, rest, and meditate. And I see him as the standard for living a healthy life. I am constantly in awe of this man. I truly desire for all men to learn from him. He encourages others with his light. He is integral, kind-hearted, hilarious, an amazing dancer, a loyal friend, a caring son, a trustworthy brother, an extremely loving partner, and he embodies the father archetype in a way I have dreamt of. He has changed my life with his love and his unwavering presence. And I truly believe that if every woman was loved this well and had this type of presence from her man, the world would be a completely different place. I'm so excited to introduce you to my partner. Please help me welcome Dr. Judd to the Untamed and Unashamed podcast. Hi, sweetheart. (laughs) Thank you for having me in our home. (laughs) Thank you for being my 100th podcast guest. You are more than welcome. I know. It's very fitting. Oh, are we on script? Yeah. Should we start over? No, no, we're going. (laughs) This is live. We we ain't doing, we ain't doing no structure here. Okay, no, you go. You keep going. I digress. Okay. I know that everyone already knows how in love with you that I am and how wonderful I think that you are and how excited I am to unfold alongside you, alongside you in Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy to have you on the show so that everyone else can fall in love with you too. Mm. (laughs) You want everybody else to fall in love with me? Mm -hmm. Okay. You share me? (laughs) Sure? No. Okay. All right. (laughs) Well, they'll see how, they'll see why I'm so in love with you. Oh, okay. (laughs) She didn't mean that at all, folks. (laughs) She's not sharing me with anybody. (laughs) Mm -mm, You're mine. Um, you're so kind, so present, so well-intentioned, so loving, so integral, so honest. You embody all of this so deeply that I felt it in your presence immediately when I met you. And I knew right away that you are a good man and a trustworthy man. Oh, goodness, everybody. I, okay. I know, honey. I just, uh, people got to know. I mean, okay. Whenever you hear me on another interview, everyone, um, I will be charismatic. I'll be playful. I'll be me. I'll be serious. I'll be intellectual. But uh, my dirt ball will come out a bit with you. No, I love your dirt ball. I know, but you're the only one that gets it. That okay. was the agreement. So I'm just letting everybody know because we're getting a lot of buildup. So I'm just letting everybody know. Like, can you give them a taste? Uh, yeah, you're going to get a little crass. Okay. Okay. Um, just a little taste. So I know it was a long path that led you to this man that you are today it's being awesome yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah. and i'd love for you to share your story mm. and i've out of all my guests you're the one i've done the most research on so really yeah. <laughs> i'm sure you and your Leave mother no stone <laughs> that was the excuse can i be on my podcast so i can do a background <laughs> check let's see I'm, I'm a bit i love origin stories so i usually i'll approach this the way i do if it was clinical and someone was sitting across from me or a friend it's really the same to me uh, where you're from, where you're born, where your parents, your caregivers, those people that brought you up, where they come from. Um, I'm from Middle Tennessee, a place called Murfreesboro, Tennessee. It's the home of Middle Tennessee, Middle Tennessee State University. That is a big deal to me because my father was the um, head sports physician there for over 30 years. Um, my sister was a professor there. My brother played football there. My dad was in the hall of fame there is in hall of fame there. Um, my 
mother set up more organizations and charities there can you can imagine and they took care of their orthopedic association took care of about every single high school and college and professional team around the middle tennessee state area so i say all that is because i came from a football family an athletic family a very high achieving family very gritty so my my Father was the first to go to college and finish on in the family. And when I use the term brilliance, I know this is about me, but this is where we come from, right? Uh, I don't use that word lightly. Uh, so when you have parents that are, how to say this, let me slow this down, that are giants as human beings, and when they walk into the room, they just own their space. Every word they say, they say it with such certainty, confidence, and their leadership qualities were off the boards. Uh, that's what, that was the standard for us of how we walk into a room and carry ourselves. Never bring shame on your family name. My grandfather was an amazing man. My father's father, he was a Baptist minister the type that would actually give you the shirt off his back. I remember when I was a kid, I was sitting at the, I was sitting at the dining table right after church. My grandmother, amazing Southern cook used to fix these amazing meals. And there was a man that came knocking at the door. I feel it's relevant to say it was a black man. I feel it's very relevant with the amount of, racism, oppression, and segregation that I witnessed growing up that was all not discussed, but very obvious in these very uniquely subtle ways of your part of town, our part of town, the neutral areas where we go. There was a place called Clearview. It's a uh, Southern soul food restaurant there in in Murfreesboro and it was kind of like this neutral territory and as much as as progressive as I like to think things are and how they've changed there was very blatant and obvious um underlyings of racism i in the public schools or around town it was not uncommon for me to hear the n word and it was very confusing growing up Southern Baptist to be exposed to God that loves all of us and we're all equal and cared for and loved for by Jesus. Yet uh, there was such an impressive, especially towards anyone of the LGBTQ plus community. Now, back then, no one even... <clears throat> came out when I was a kid growing up in the, I was born in 79. So in the eighties. So all this to say, I need to preface that when I say a black man came to the door and my grandfather went outside and just to show what kind of man he was, some the man I could overhear the conversation. He said, uh, I'm really struggling right now. And some men, um, down at the auto shop when my car broke down, told me if there was anyone in town that I could go to that would help me it would be you. And I watched my grandfather hand him uh, a wad of money 
and he always had a car on hand that he would fix up. He would fix up an old beater car that maybe someone would leave behind so he could trade the car with whomever had a car they had broken down. He said, if you want your car, I'll fix this up and have it ready for it. If you don't, just keep this other one. And he always had one changing out like that. So anybody that was down and out, he would help them with money. And uh, he came back to sit at the table. My brother had some questions about what the man need. And he said, I gave him some money and he wouldn't tell us how much. But he said, I, he goes, well, how's he going to pay you back? It's like, oh, I'll probably never see that money again. But God brought him to my door for a reason. So that's what kind of man my grandfather was. And that's what kind of people my parents uh, are. I still speak in the present tense. It sounds odd um, since my dad's no longer with us to speak speak of him as in past tense. But I've never seen people give the way my, my parents have. Um, it went above and beyond the 10% to the church. And so that's my origin story and the high standards of leadership, of equality that my parents and my grandparents stood for in a community that was lacking in those areas. And education in my family meant that you could work twice as hard without throwing your back out in a hard laborious job. My parents were always putting us to work because no matter how much money we had, they didn't want to raise little shits. They didn't want to raise entitled human beings that felt like the world owed them something. My mom being raised very, very, very poor from a alcoholic father that was running around on the family and left her and her sisters and her mother alone, where most nights she didn't have anything in the fridge or the pantry to eat, where they all as young girls had jobs. My mom was always stressing the importance of, my mom's the type if she went to Costco or Sam's Club uh, and they had, say, vacuums, the newest vacuums on sale, she'd buy 20 of them and give them all away to people she know that otherwise wouldn't buy them. She, I've never seen anyone or witnessed anyone give the way my mom does. So it was a beautiful upbringing being in a home of very strong leaders fervent, fervent in their beliefs and what they said is what they meant. And there was always a consequence for going against what they believed. Work and give back. I mentioned earlier, don't bring shame on your family name. And the John's family name, being my grandfather and my father, really meant something in our hometown. Everybody knew my grandfather. Everybody knew my father. So I could not get an inch out of line without someone calling the house. And my, I was, I am, still am, the youngest. I have a, a brother that's six years older. is kind of rowdy. And my sister's 10 years older. And I say rowdy. I mean, being a football family and being a hometown that was very small then, uh, I'm witnessing my heroes. I'm witnessing uh, everywhere I went, 
as a kid, I would hear stories from everybody about how amazing my father was in football. He came, he was raised rough in the leather helmet days, nose been broken like seven times going three or four different ways. And, um, my brother, we're talking about a guy that was benching almost 400 pounds coming out of high school and a high prospect playing linebacker. And the intensity in our household of very uh, perfectionist sounds uh, off-putting. I know they wouldn't agree at all, but the standard was so high with my sister being like a 4.0 student, uh, my brother um, as an athlete, and both my parents being the pillars of a community. Um, that is a lot of... It's a lot of masks to wear in leadership. And then when you come home, you see the exhausted versions of people that are overworked and exhausted. And, you know, when I got up in the morning and and my parents weren't there and when I went to bed, they weren't there. I mean, they worked, but it was beautiful because football season, I was always on the sidelines. I was at my brother's games where my dad was working as an North Peak surgeon and then we were at the other high school games and then Saturdays we were at, you know, away games or there I was on the sidelines to middle Tennessee state. I mean, it was a beautiful childhood. I was either in the OR with my father. I had seen, by the time I was seven, I'd already seen bullets from hunting accidents taken out of people's femurs or <clears throat> legs reset or people that wrecked their crotch rocket on the interstate being put back together by my dad. And I would scrub up and just sit there and watch. Um, he was like a king in the town. He could do whatever he wanted. At one point he was the only orthopedic associate uh, uh, surgeon in the, the state, like in that town uh, because the other one had committed suicide. So all of this to say like, who am I? That brought me into this world as always feeling like I was never enough and I needed to measure up and really accomplish something to be seen by my brother and my dad as my heroes. And all I ever wanted to do was make my mom happy and put a smile on her face because I've never witnessed anyone work as hard as my parents and have as high standards. And I wanted to meet those. And so when things fell and they fell hard was when I was around nine years old, my great grandmother was, had just moved out. She'd been living with us because my parents worked so much. And I started hanging around over older teenagers in the neighborhood. And one of those teenagers sexually abused me. And that was a real turning point because it was not only It was not only painful in that your magic feels like it's being taken away from you. When I'm around kids and I've started off a lot of my career as a director of childcare and I studied a lot of human development with children, seeing that as your magic and seeing that as your a part of your human experience that can be so playful 
and I believe it's meant to guide us in the most loving and caring way. And that I felt was taken away. And I was emasculated, dominated, humiliated by this person. And I didn't realize at the time because I was so terrified of people finding out. So I mentioned the oppression between, um, I'm going to say it again, the LGBTQ plus community, yet uh, all I knew then was one of my mom's managers that she hired for the association that my parents started. Uh, he was gay. Now, not openly, yet I just had this feeling as a child. And he was, his name was Tim, and he was so sweet to me. One of the dearest people to me. And I remember my mom checking him into rehab and me taking his cologne back to the car. I was probably around eight years old at that point. And I remember feeling that I understood why he was in so much pain because I witnessed all the alpha males that are very dominant in their energy, the athletes coming through the practice and the association, uh, teasing him or making fun of him for being more effeminate. And I remember that just breaking my heart. And I remember how he was treated and how he felt. And so when it was an older male in the neighborhood that was abusing me, I was terrified not only from the Christian standpoint of no longer being a virgin, I was also terrified by the other alpha males and my heroes and my family being my brother and my dad see me as less than by, from a homophobic perspective, that they would think I was gay. I remember having that conversation with myself as a child, understanding that you were either innately that way or not, because... I knew very clearly the magazines that I would find on my brother or, or those different teenagers would show me. I was attracted to uh, women in those magazines. And I knew what was being done to me by that teenager felt good. It feels good to be stimulated. Um, it was not my preference, yet I was stimulated. And it felt god-awful the way I was being treated the way I was being manhandled, the way I was being used. And so that circumstance and right around the corner, it was like my great grandmother moving out of the house, that beginning to happen. Um, by this time I'm in fifth grade going into sixth grade and I was at the home, I was at home alone and my brother was really into guns the way my brother and my dad bonded uh, was um, my brother was into guns. I was in knives and my dad would take us to these gun and knives shows. We were really in the craftsmanship of knives. My dad, it, just an amazing, he's an artist and he and I shared art together. And so we really had an eye for things that were crafted well. And it was so much fun to be brought up that way because I would come down maybe to his, workroom 
or you know, he had this work shed and he'd be welding together tools to use in the operating room the next day. I mean, he was a gunslinger. He's like, no, you know, there's the way they're developing these hip replacements. Like I, I'm, there's just a completely different way to do it. And I'm and so he would weld and, you know, hand it to the nurse and she would sterilize it. And he would use it the next day in the operating room and create something. He was just constantly creating better and better ways to do things. And so he and I, he inspired that in me always to be very creative and to see the quality and craftsmanship everywhere I looked from door frames to woodwork. All that to be said is my brother had a, uh, the largest pistol sitting out. It was a desert Eagle 5.0. He had sitting out uh, in his room and usually we kept the guns away, but he had it uh, loaded. I didn't know. And I remember, I remember to this day, like what I was wearing, how cool I thought that was. I think I watched that movie. Uh, oh, the same gun was used with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, whatever that movie that flops, sorry, Arnold. Um, but he uses the same gun. Uh, it's like a kid's movie, a last action hero. And so I'm, I'm like holding this gun really strong, kind of acting things out in the, where I had a lot of uh, trauma. And I'm going to explain that definition in my own terms in a second. What terrified me is because I was looking down the barrel I was playing with this gun and all you have to do is just barely pull the uh, slide back for a, a bullet to go in the chamber. And he had hollow points, which means when it makes impact, it explodes the back. And so if this would have hit my foot, it would have taken my foot clean off. Um, but the, I was holding the gun very strongly and I pulled the trigger and the gun went off. And if you can imagine the highest caliber handgun out there going off in a, nine-year-old child's hand indoors the deafening noise the kickback is just like it's a hand cannon and the gun smoke inside of a house um i was on the second floor so it went to the second floor down to the basement and uh, absolute trauma and so when i say trauma um i'm saying things that happen too much, too fast, too soon, all the twos you can think of uh, that create an immediate wound, a, a cut, if you will. And so you, you imagine um, this child that has these parents that are raising you to be incredibly independent or interdependent, which is why they moved my great grandmother out of the house. They didn't like that I was wanting to sleep in her bed each night which is a huge thing with children. If that suddenly comes on, I'm always very considerate and cautious of because that's when I was being sexually abused and then she moved out and then it really, it increased because there was no, no one to oversee or no one to hide or no one to like see that we go out to the clubhouse and where that would take place. And so I came downstairs. My great grandmother had just pulled up. She was getting more of her things. And I remember her smelling the gun smoke and her reaction. <clears throat> She's like, oh, you're in trouble, boy. And uh, my dad was pretty quick with the belt to my brother. Um, I am grateful that he was much slower with me. 
maybe he learned something with my brother that what is just a kid normally being a kid and how you can be a bit more patient before you physically correct with a belt or whipping. And my brother called my dad and it's terrifying. All I remember is they're standing over me, these two giants of men that I look up to and they're holding the gun and my dad handed it to me and he's giving me like a gun safety talk, which is the worst time to give it given I am shaking. I mean, I was terrified the gun was going to go back off. All I want to do is hand it off. And, uh, then he said, I got to punish you. And he gave me a pretty solid whipping. And it was just the alpha male dominant energy of being strong, powerful presence at all times. And so I start, I'm crying. Like I am crying so hard. And my big brother, I love you, Tommy. My big brother is poking his head in from the, the crack of the door, giving the, like the, the classic big brother, like me, me, like mocking me and making fun of me crying. And now I'm like trying to keep it in. It's, it's overwhelming all the energy of being sexually abused. My great grandmother moving out, not being able to tell everybody the fears of being seen gay, the fears of being seen as a sinner, as a Christian, the losing virginity, uh, being a male. I mean, there's so many things that are swirling around in my head all day that I was keeping in and trying to fit in with these older teenagers in the neighborhood and just felt like I had nowhere I belonged and no one I could talk to. And I was being emasculated. I mean, I felt just like I was so weak and I was nowhere close to being the men that I admired. And that moment I feel just really broke me. And I tuned out. So by by middle of that sixth grade year, I mean, my grades were so bad. I was always able to do whatever I needed to do. And it's grade school, right? Come on. Um, but I, I just, I... I I did not care. I don't know how to describe that any other way, but I did not care. I, I couldn't breathe the energy into anything to care enough to study, to do homework, to interact at school. And and the sexual abuse went on for I would say a little bit over a year. And where it stopped is that um, this person tried to have anal sex with me and I just innately knew that it would hurt me. And I really stood up for myself and said no. And um, that was it. That was the last time. And at that point, my parents were so afraid for me, where was my life headed if I couldn't even get good grades in like grade school? I'm curious if any of you have tried Paleo Valley's Oregon Complex. Oregon pills are also known as nature's multivitamin. 
Most people are taking a multivitamin and think that it's making them healthier. However, it's best to get the nutrients your body needs in whole food form. Oregon Complex is one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet and the richest natural source of so many vitamins that many people are deficient in. Oregon meats are nature's most potent source of B12 and contains vitamin K, choline, vitamin A, and other nutrients that will help your brain thrive. Most of us are tired and supplementing with caffeine, but liver is such a powerful energy booster that researchers have deemed it the organ meat with a potent anti-fatigue factor. It's also a natural hair, skin, and nail booster. And if you know anyone coming off of birth control, this pill replenishes the minerals depleted by birth control pills. For me, it has helped me with my iron issues in the past and has really helped with my period symptoms and my energy levels. I love eating organ meats as a meal with my family, but we can't do that every day. And so I'm really thankful to have the supplement. I take four capsules daily with fat and vitamin C for ultimate absorption. I use uh, Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex with it. You can head over to paleovalley.com forward slash Jade for 15% off your first order. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com forward slash Jade. Paleovalley.com forward slash Jade for 15% off your first order. Now on with the show. And so by the end of my sixth grade year, my mom, very positive, uh, my mom's name's Queenie. Um, Queenie, Queenie's got a great presentation. Uh, her, my mom's delivery is just impeccable. How she will sell anything. And so mom says, okay, we have all these, these boarding schools and these, uh, these places that are just really going to help give you structure. And I came down to the breakfast table and they're all over the breakfast table. And like, you pick your top three and we'll pick our top three. And I tell you what, we'll go visit your three and we'll go visit ours. And, and we'll, we'll all decide what's the best fit for you. I chose, uh, you know, a co-ed boarding school in Florida with water sports. And we didn't go visit that one. We visited one in uh, Fork Union, Virginia, Fork Union Military Academy. And I didn't come home. <laughs> I didn't come home. It was ah okay. So I'm walking around the academy, and what they do is when you first get there, you go to the you go to the headquarters where they're starting to load you up on your foot locker, your uniform, your combat boots, your fatigues all the accoutrement for a military academy where your civilian clothes are taken away. And I'm walking around with this black kid that is relevant. I will tell you that in a second. So I'm walking around with this black kid named LeVar and he's helping me with my foot locker. And he says, uh, Hey, look on your card. What's your room number? And I said, a one, he was like, no dumbass. Like that's alpha platoon one what does it say beyond that like what's your alpha company platoon one but what does it say your room number is i said okay it says a1 a1 dumbass and he looked at it and he's like man you're my roommate and he just straight up said he's like man i wanted a black roommate and um never had someone that blatantly honest with me about uh race or color or preference and I needed to be real with myself that it felt more safe. And this is, these are two uh, 
by this time we're 12 year old kids. So if I was, let's see, five year old when the sexual abuse started. And then by the time it was 11 uh, through that year and then just turned 12. So you have two 12 year olds where LeVar and I are a month apart uh, being very honest and transparent about preferences and color in an all male military academy in Virginia. Um, that's when things get real. And that is a huge teaching point that I have on the concept of judgments. Because my belief, or at least my interpretation of a judgment is when we have a desire to be connected with another human being, yet we have a story that if they change their color, their hair, their tie-dye t-shirt, their shoes, whatever it is that we want to create our mind that is causing some type of disconnect between us that we would be more connected. And so color was obviously LeVar and I's story. And it held up for a short bit. There's usually parts that I don't share because we could not stand each other's guts. Uh, I walked in the room, my parents, you know, take a Polaroid and leave and, uh, I see their car pull away and this kid named Perch comes in and he was a, he was our platoon leader. And this thing about military academy, especially in middle school is if they have a, if they have a kid that's kind of on the cusp of being a rowdy kid that could get kicked out, they'll give a chance and give them a leadership role. Even if their behavior isn't matching someone that needs to be promoted to a leadership role, because maybe that will align them, give them responsibility and they'll fly straight. That did not work with this young man. This is my platoon leader that walks in the room and he says, uh, let's play five of the head. And I look up and he slams his fist into my head my my forehead and my the sides of my head about three times lightning fast speed. He was a he was a very very dominant fighter, a street fighter growing up in Queens. And uh, he's like, <clears throat> "All right, that's three to the head, nigga. You got two more." And I feel these lumps like coming up on my head, and I am terrified. I thought I was a tough kid. I thought I could hold my own, and I felt all alone. I felt so terrified. I felt so dominated and all I could do is put this tough exterior on. I remember that night and every following night <clears throat> I couldn't wait to get in my top uh, bunk of the bed and just put my face in the pillow and cry. And I didn't want everyone to see me, hear me and probably most cadets were in that place. And then 5.30 a.m., GI trash can is being banged. Uh, We had no doors, uh, no curtains over the windows, so everything's out in the open, and you're you're hopping out of bed, you're making your bed, you're getting on your hands and knees, and you're getting bowling alley wax across from LeVar, waxing the floor. Then you get up and spit sign your boots and your shoes, and then you get uniform ready, you get out information, and then you <clears throat> march to the mess hall, you eat breakfast, you go back to your barracks, you clean your barracks to be inspected, and then you get back in formation so your person and your uniform can be inspected. You salute the flag going up, and then you march to class. That's how your day starts every single day. And every single action has a potential for an infraction. 
And so I was so utterly obsessed all day, every day with being in trouble because there was a serious consequence to being in trouble. So uh, say if I forgot my pencil going to class, that's unprepared for class. So that's eight demerits. And so with eight demerits came eight tours and each tour was 45 minutes of marching and fatigues and combat boots with a rifle in your hand. And so quickly you learn to pay attention to this guidebook, which is basically like an OCD manual for you to obsess about every single little detail. So you wouldn't have an infraction. So the little free time that you did have uh, would not be taken away or your leave to potentially see your parents or leave the Academy would be taken away. So I was in a constant state of fear. And through that extreme environment, LeVar and I became inseparable. We found that we had more similarities than differences, and we became inseparable best friends. And uh, a year later, his grandmother, his only relative left, died, and he was going to be sent back to New York. And my parents took full responsibility of LeVar. And there was something in that action of my parents that softened my heart for the first time because I was so angry at them. And that really allowed me to consider and see the best parts of my family where I felt like I was put on the outside, that maybe there was something bigger that I wasn't seeing. And I needed to consider, yet I was still pissed off. And they allowed me to still have my best friend and brother now with me at all times. And so LeVar and I, we had a pact to look out for each other. And we were there for six years, from 12 years old to 18 years old. And that first year was the hardest because my parents had me go to, they were worried about my grades still not being high enough. So I went to summer school as well. So I think a total of my, from 12 years old to 13, I was maybe um, back in Tennessee, maybe got on a plane to go back in Tennessee. And maybe it was six weeks out of that entire year. and. That developed in me a level of street smarts and a level of interdependence and a level of coldness that I don't think most could really, was obvious to most, wasn't obvious to myself. Because on the exterior, I was always that playful, laughing all the time kid. And that's what LeVar helped bring out me. We just found the humor in everything we had to to survive. There's beauty in the academy. There is so much love in the mentorship that I received there. The academy gave me structure and great mentorship. What it didn't have and what, if it makes any sense, why I became a doctor of clinical psychology. That's my identity more. I might went to school to become a doctor of clinical psychology was that You can give someone structure, you can give someone opportunity, you can help them achieve. Yet, if they have deep wounds under all of that, then they're using the deep wounds to manifest and create 
and there is a so much more opportunity to healing those wounds. When we're talking about wounds, we're talking about trauma. I'm talking about things that happened to me too fast, too soon, too much at once, like a gun going off your head, being whipped by your dad afterwards, being sexually abused at a young age when that <clears throat> sex was meant to or that magic was meant for someone in my later teenage years with someone to be consensual and caring and compassionate. That's the, the dream or the story for all of us. And that just wasn't the story. And that is my definition of suffering and why I was suffering because I had so many stories that did not align with the reality. I felt a lot of those things shouldn't happen. I shouldn't be a kid that sent away to military academy. I shouldn't be a kid that uh, was whipped for being a kid. I shouldn't be used sexually and so I needed to make up whatever story I needed to make up to harden myself to get through because when you're pounded or beaten on the moment that you get to the academy I realized okay it's a sheep or wolf mentality and I need to become a wolf and I had a lot of loving mentors that cared for me spoke to me directly were very strong in their presence and let it be known that they weren't going to let me get away with anything because they loved me and they cared about my development and who I am becoming as a young man and who I'm going to be in this world. One of them was Bobby Cobb in eighth grade. I, I broke my arm. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> you know, it's worth sharing. So I, I was watching that whole summer Dick Buck as he was giving like those forearm shivers and I was watching like some of the hardest hitters in the NFL. So I was like, okay, like that's how I'm going to like take on a blocker and then like shuffle them off to go for a tackle as a middle linebacker. And uh, first game of the season, I go to give someone a forearm shiver and just like slam my forearm right into their face mask and broke my arm. And so I learned that lesson the hard way that, uh, you know, that's like a grown man's part of the game. And uh, the academy didn't believe that I broke my arm. They thought like I sprained my wrist and I could feel that it was breaking, broken. I heard the crack and I laid in bed in pain for two days, which I could barely move it until I, I just pleaded with them to take me to the UVA hospital where they could actually get an x-ray. And they allowed LeVar to go. Uh, so I just have someone close to me to help. And that was terrifying. I mean, I, I'm in Virginia as a 13-year-old. Uh, I haven't seen my parents, but maybe six weeks, you know, since the time that I was just turned 12. And now I'm in a hospital about to have my arm reset. Um felt so alone. I had LeVar. And yeah, my dad came to rescue. He got on the phone with the head physician there and made sure that he did everything correctly. And still, um, I still felt I was childhood was over. When you're brought up in an environment like that, you really, if you want to succeed at your sport or academics, there's no, there's no better place to help you focus. There's no women. There's no farmer's daughters. You're in the middle of nowhere. And uh, 
mine was focused on track. I, I wrestled. Um, I got my ass handed to me every single day by a kid where both of his brothers were Olympians. His name was Sean. And, uh, he was, um, aiming to be Olympian. And so when I was in middle school, he was, I was going against him every day and just almost crying every single practice, just being just dominated constantly. But he was teaching me everything I could possibly learn at that level. And it was expedited. And so I'm working out with the varsity after I'm with the middle schoolers and I was just, that's all I had. If I could see myself grow or become better, then uh, I was worthy of being seen. And maybe my parents would see me the way they saw my brother or my sister. And maybe I feel like I belonged or I'd be acknowledged. That was my story, right? That's, the, that's how I was suffering because I had that story. And the reality is they love me. Is They were desperate and they were scared and they didn't know what to do. And that was the choice they made. And it's amazing as parents and being the person I am that works with teenagers and parents now is that life's moving at lightning speed. It's so hard to slow things down to see where everything turned, where everything shifted with kids and how that disconnect happened with teenagers. And even recognizing the words, I'm sorry to say like, hey, there's a disconnect that's happened between us and everything that happens from that point forward is an attempt to reconnect. They don't teach us that. Parents don't come with this manual, especially not the manual that I had in military academy that taught you how to do everything from two fingers between each hanger to how to fold your sheets, everything. And I think if you're given a manual, probably that is where you obsess because you're afraid and because you're always trying to grasp, grasp the illusion of control. And so I obsessed, I obsessed about wrestling. I obsessed about track, I obsessed about football. And with wrestling was the first time in my life where it came so natural after being my ass handed to me by that kid every single day. By the time I was a freshman, I was undefeated and I was being recruited by Dan Gable at uh, Iowa. And I was getting this attention as being, you know, getting a scholarship one day. And I was so done with military academy and I was so ready just to live what I thought was a normal high school existence or life with cheerleaders or driving to school, being 16, going home and having a meal with the family, sleeping in your own room or your own bed, having friends that you could call. None of that was a reality. And it just seemed like a dream. And even every single night before LeVar and I would play a football game, we would amp each other up about, about all the privileges that all the other high school kids had that we didn't have. All those things I just mentioned and more. You know, we'd think about every little detail that we were going to take out on them on the football field and dominate them because of what we didn't have. And that was the mentality. And um, 
with wrestling, it was this very unique circumstance where I was suddenly no longer the underdog and I was being considered of, of, of having this, having all this privilege and opportunity where, where I'd never, I never had before. And I didn't know how to take it. And, uh, I got my dad on the phone and I pleaded with him that I wanted to come home. And he said, you can leave there, but you're not coming back here. And I feel that that was like this, this moment that I just lost all once again, kind of like when I was in grade school, I lost care again. And, uh, I was going into the state championships and I was favored to win. And I got together with this senior and I was going to apply for a leave to go on leave instead of go to the state championship, hoping that maybe the commandant's office didn't, um, align with the coach and realized I was just going to suddenly take off. And the senior had had a motorcycle parked at one of the local cadets houses. And so I was going to jump on the back of the Harley. We were going to go on leave. And that Sunday night, uh, when I was waiting for my buddy to come back <clears throat> on that motorcycle ride from the university, I got a uh, note that, <clears throat> He didn't. The same ride that I was supposed to take on the back of the Harley, he um, he got swept up under a tractor trailer on the highway and he died. And uh, that was the first of many deaths of people close to me that I didn't allow myself to feel. Um, I had about a dozen people take their own lives that were close to me from military academy. And, uh, I didn't, I buried it. I never allowed myself to feel it. I never allowed myself to see that as my reality. I was always going to treat my life as if I was, I was indestructible at the same time. That's the way I played football. I hit, we, you know, we had this whole saying hit to hurt. I, I put everything on the line and was taught to hit the third man behind the person you're trying to hit, just trying to take their head off. And with every hit, it was like, I just wanted to respect my father and my brother. And I just had that chip on my shoulder that was slowly killing me. It was breaking down my body and I was achieving a lot. And by putting everything on the line, especially in track, and I'll try to sum it up by letting you know that by my senior year, I was uh, willing to do anything to achieve the highest standard of playing big time college football. I wanted to run track as well. And I'd taken a recruiting trip out to the University of Colorado and they let me know that they, they would bring me on as a priority scholarship. What that means is I'm going to walk on and have a better chance of making the team and earning a scholarship than most. And I did just that. And uh, by my first game, I was on the traveling team playing at Mile High Stadium um, against Colorado State. It's big-time rivalry. And by the last game of the season, I'm traveling to Nebraska for a big-time Thanksgiving rivalry. And, you know, I go from this military academy with no cheerleaders and, 
you know, unless the commandant ordered the corps to watch the game, nobody in the stands, but a few parents that could make it out to rural Virginia and the military academy, <laughs> 50,000 plus people in the stands. It was, the freedom was overwhelming, that transition. And I had the structure and the discipline, yet I still had the wounds underneath all of it. And so what I needed to do, what I felt like I needed to do to make the team, to make a name for myself was to sacrifice my body above anything else. And I would go after the hardest hitter on the team, trying to make a name for myself. And, you know, they nicknamed me blackout because if I hit you, it was either you're getting knocked out or I'm getting knocked out, but one of us is going to be out. And, um, my body broke to pieces. I, I had by my senior year, I'd had four shoulder surgeries. I had my quadricep muscle head ripped in half and raveled up in my hip. And I had that reattached to a donor tendon. Whole nother story of, of that because it was actually, you know what? I'm gonna pinpoint that. Um and then, you know, I'd never done recreational drugs in my entire life. And now I'm taking, I'm being a tort all shot in the ass, you know, before games, which that makes you all loosey goosey and no longer able to feel pain and cortisone shots directly in my shoulders to numb them, which just feels amazing when you're not able to feel your shoulder when everything is just, just excruciating pain and the amount of concussions I had, I mean, we're considering that every single hit was you're seeing lights as far as concussion, then, you know, it didn't feel like it was a true hard hit unless I was seeing flashes of light or blacking out or sometimes I lose my peripheral. Um, I was a mess. So when I, when I got on painkillers from my surgeries and I'd never done recreational drugs, I was a fraction of myself. I was numb, not only physically, but emotionally. Um, the anger, I was no, no longer able to hide the resentments. It was like everything had built up. I was no longer able to laugh or play. And um, the one of the most devastating aspects of being injured to that level is that I'd always planned on also running track in college. And once the quad... Uh, quadricep ripped in half that was not happening and then I'd had a dream of going to special forces specifically the Navy SEALs and I was training with Navy SEALs and uh, they made it very clear to me the guys I was training with like man you're a mess not only the painkillers but guys you know your age are coming in um, to training uh, getting red for buds and SEALs training with no injuries and you you're popping handfuls of painkillers just to, after each workout. And I, had, you know, my brother had done a few tours as a fighter pilot. He retired later as a Lieutenant Colonel. And I had had many, many, many um, people in my family serve this country and a lot a lot of purple hearts and green berets and people that were willing to die and serve for this country. And I felt that that was a huge part of my duty. And what was the point of being given this 
athletic body or this skill set uh, not to be a part of some of the best um, to serve and protect mixed with a lot of anger behind it. Very confusing. And so when that option felt like it was taken away because of the, the choices I had made to play college football, the depression was even lower. And I, when I realized now grieving the way that I have over my father's death, that was just it. I was never allowed or never shown. I was illiterate to grief. I didn't grieve the childhood that I that I no longer had. I didn't grieve the friends around me that had died. I didn't grieve being away from my family and my parents. I didn't grieve. I mean, when we get injured, we're in a state of grief. We're not taught that. We've lost a piece of our health. And if you're so disconnected from your body that it's like, oh, I separated my AC joint. Oh, my biceps tendon ripped in half. Oh, like my quad just raveled up in my hip. And just believing that you're indestructible and it doesn't matter, that means you're not willing to stop, breathe, grieve, and feel the pain of all of it emotionally, physically, spiritually, that you, you're separated from your head and your heart. And so... I feel that's a, at least a good part of the story to leave off. Imagine, I know you have questions, honey, to uh, allow me to answer how I got to where I am from where I was. And so um, I know <laughs> I'm looking up at the, the live feed here and I know we're over an hour and um, I I love stories and I love storytelling and how people origin stories of how you get to where you are. And so I pray that uh, for anybody that's out there listening, I promise I, I tell my story with intent. So whatever questions you have, honey, my intent is to really speak from the heart and that it helps someone out there hearing my story. Mm. Thanks, baby. Thanks for sharing all of that. You're welcome, my love. <laughs> um. You mentioned a couple of times that uh, your dad passed and you didn't get to that part of your story. Do you want to share what your relationship with him became in your adult life and how that healed? Yes. Yes. Um, I remember this moment. So my senior year, we had won the big 12 championship. And before we got to that game, we played Nebraska and we'd always lost against Nebraska by a few points with all that wounding um, I'm going into that game as like putting everything on the line with the last bit of faith that I had that if I was to win a championship in college, which was one of my main goals, that it all wouldn't be for nothing. All this pain wouldn't be for nothing. And we beat Nebraska, which was the number one ranked team in the nation at the time for our last home game. 62-36, and I was on the victory formation of that game. And <clears throat> it's just like, if you watch Colorado now, you see like they're storming the field, 50,000 plus. That's how it was for our, our last game. They're ripping down the goalposts. It's wild. And uh, my parents went to that game. 
and I'm looking up in the stands and I'm, it took about 45 minutes just to wade myself through the sea of people to get to them. And I remember looking at my dad and there was something deep in like my foundational principle of interacting with him that said, don't fully be with him. Like, don't let him off the hook, like smile, but don't fully like embrace him. Like, don't fully allow yourself to be happy with him. Remember what he did. I mean, it was like this, these resentments that were so strong. That was the first time that I remember, okay, everything around me, people is just chaos of excitement and celebration that we're about to go play University of Texas in the Big 12 championship. And I still had that, like, just that flood of, don't fully let go to this moment with him. Don't, don't have that. Don't give him that satisfaction that he was a part of getting you here. And that carried on for a while. That carried on for a while. I, I traveled all over the world, backpacking, getting odd jobs. I was a coach of a little semi-pro American football team in France. Travel over North Africa, then Australia, New Zealand, and really getting back at my parents in these passive aggressive ways. I mean, I wouldn't for months at a time, I wouldn't reach out to my mom by email. So she wouldn't know where I was in the world. And it was always to punish them and get back at them. Very childish. And About five years ago, um, you know, I'm going to back up even even further. I was studying on another amazing mentor that I, I could not feel his love. And I realized why I couldn't feel Coach Sullivan and Bobby Cobb's love uh, initially is because I didn't love myself. I could feel their care because I cared about myself. And that was the thing, same thing with Paul Check, And I was able to study under him. And he had the wherewithal and the fervence as a leader and as a teacher to call me out. And in, in front of about 30 practitioners, the top practitioners all over the world, he called me out and he said, I've never seen anyone more in their head than out of their heart. And he said, I'm prescribing you 300 consecutive days of Tai Chi meditation for 20 minutes a day. And he saw my face like, what? Because at that point I was in grad school, full-time, uh, a full caseload of patients. I worked at a high school, private school, coaching football track and teaching a health and education course. And I thought I had no time and all I could do was work like my parents. You, you you work endlessly and you get what you want. And he's telling me to slow down and do meditation. And uh, it was the greatest prescription anyone ever given me. And he, he's the type of man, he called me out directly and he said, go have that conversation with your father. Judd, tell him what you just told me. He deserves to hear your truth. What if he leaves this earth and you never speak your truth? You deserve to speak your truth and he deserves to hear your truth. And I had this belief that like, 
okay, football is what connected my dad and I. So like, that was my only way to maybe belong with him. Now I didn't play football anymore. Who am I? Um, all my surgeries and injuries, like he's an amazing physician and surgeon. So I'm always calling him and asking him and learning about the body and how to recover from whatever injury. Now, if I'm getting better and I don't need his help, then where's our connection? And I had all these doubts in my faith and the religion that I was raised in. And if I tell him that, that's like the last thread of connection. So who am I without that now? Father, though, I say that I didn't need, I didn't want, I didn't desire the hero in my life that I looked up to. Now I'm risking it all by speaking my truth and him turning his back on me. And it's facing that fear and being guided by Paul to face that fear and slow down for 20 to 40 to hours a day and breathe and move and feel my lungs and feel all the pain and to grieve and to grieve with my dad until eventually I had a drop of forgiveness in every single circumstance with my father until I realized there's nothing left to forgive. And so I had forgiven my dad fully and I didn't require him to change or see the story any other way for me to forgive him. And it was only when I reached that place where we able to see, I'm able to make my idols into equals. And we had some equality between us and a love that had the potential to reconnect. And I was heading to a wedding in Guatemala. And he gave me one of those calls that forever changed my life. I have a 6 a.m. flight and he called me late at night. And he said, son, I know you're going out tomorrow morning and I just got to get this off my chest. It was very odd because it sounded like he was breathing, breathing in oxygen. I was like, okay, it's, he told me he had something going on with his lungs, but it was really downplayed. And he said, I just got to talk and I just want you to listen. And he said, son, I raised you with the mentality that to spare the rod, you spoil the child. And I never realized to this moment that the rod is pertaining to a shepherd's rod. And a shepherd would never beat his sheep. You were the sweetest child I'd ever come across. And I know I did a lot to change that in you. You had a lot of amazing mentors growing up in a military academy, but there's no excuse for not having a real father. And we sat there for minutes, silent. And I said, Dad, I already forgave you before you said a word. The only thing that matters in this world is will you forgive yourself? And we sat there for a while. 
from Austin, Texas to Tennessee, I could feel the moment that he forgave himself. And he said, yes, son, I can. I am. And for 30 plus years, we had a disconnect between us and I felt it immediately, immediately in that moment reconnect. I hadn't missed my father, allowed myself to miss my father since I was probably nine years old. So I told him I loved him. I was going to go on this trip. And he said, I'm really excited to see you soon, son. Please come down here and see me or come up here. I laid down briefly when I got the phone and I closed my eyes and I had this vision that I sprung up from of two hands sitting across from each other. One looked a little weathered and warm, but they were identical. And I wasn't even going to read into it. Car was already packed to go to the airport at 6 a.m. Alarm was set. I didn't even bother. I just went straight in the car and started heading to Tennessee. And I called my big brother that's an airline pilot. I said, dude, will you cancel my flight? And uh, do you think you'd go see dad right now? I just have this feeling, man. I just, my heart is telling me to see him right now. And he's like, dude, I'm, I'm sitting at the gate between Nashville and Dallas where he lives. And he's like, I can jump on a flight. I was thinking about seeing dad soon anyway. And I said, dude, just see him. Something's going on. Whatever he told us about his lungs. I don't know. I just, I feel something's going on. 13 hour drive throughout the night. I get there in the morning and dad is just smiling ear to ear. My brother hugs me. He's like, dude, dad's fine. Brother gets in a cab. Tells my dad, I'll see you in a couple months. So he's going to bring his, my nephews, his boys back. Dad puts his big paw on mine and calls out to my mom. He's like, will you take a picture of Juddy, Juddy boy and I? And my dad being an artist and a surgeon took a lot of pride in his hands. And he asked, he said, put them across, like put your hands across from mine. I'm looking at him as my mom's taking the picture. I'm like, oh, we have the same hands. My mom takes the picture and I look over and see what she took. And I realized that was the image in my dreams that woke me up. Before I could even think about it, my dad said, you just want to go on a walk with me. And he takes this little portable oxygen machine with him. And he's explaining about how his lungs are getting worse. And I'm looking at him and he's looking out at the property like it's either the first time he's ever seen it or the last time. And we look at each other and I didn't think our gaze would ever. I didn't think we'd ever stop looking at each other. And the battery of the oxygen machine started going off. And he said, son, we just walk upstairs and, you know, kind of hang out with me while I'm taking a shower. He's taking a while, so I went to grab my bag out of the car. And when I did, I looked back and saw the suit that I was supposed to wear to the wedding in Guatemala. And for the first time in my life, I had this voice that just came up in my heart that said, you're going to be wearing that by the end of the week. And I'm thinking maybe I'm just delirious from driving all night. I get upstairs and I'm looking at my emails on my phone and the same voice that stay in this moment, be here. Be present. I put my phone down. I'm starting to watch my dad and he's sitting on the edge of the shower and oh, he's shaving and 
clinging his body in the same voice that he's preparing his body for death. And I just stood up instinctively. My dad did at the same time. And we're looking at each other through the shower door. And I said, Daddy, you okay? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, son. He put his head down and he wrote it okay. And he wrote the K backwards so I could see it. She showed you how present he was. He takes this big, huge breath with his arms in the air. He looks at me again and he lays down on the floor. <laughs> I'm in shock. What are you doing? And uh, I open up the shower door, I shut off the water, and I get these two big towels. And I put one under his head and scoop him up and put one over his body. And he just twists towards me and he puts his big paws on the side of my face. And he says, when you allow the spirit to guide your heart, you're going to be unstoppable, son. And he died in my arms. And for anybody that's been around death, it's body shutting down. It's not so pretty. Yet I knew when my dad left, that vessel was in my arms. And all my faith came back immediately. All the doubts I had about God, our souls, and a father's love. They were destroyed in that moment. So who am I without the anger, the resentments, these stories of betrayal, no longer belonging. If those stories are destroyed and that's my identity, then who am I? Yeah, that's been the journey. Who am I ever since that moment? I love you. Um. Those words that your father spoke to you, did you feel like a shift in your life because of those words right away or was it something gradual or can you talk about that shift that those words made for you? Yeah, it was immediate because I saw in his eyes that he could see all the stuff that I couldn't see. That me starting an institute called Dr. Judd Institute, based on all the teachings that I thought I had mastered, all the arrogance I had behind working with famous people, Olympians, Super Bowl champions, that I was the man, I was the answer. I was at a fraction of capacity. I was functioning that place of achievement and look at me. And if you're going to understand spiritual energy, the spirit, your spirit, the only way I can, and uniquely, I've never put this together, my dad dying of a lung disease. If you're going to see the spirit seat as your breath, 
It's all around you. It's all encompassing. Your lungs might be part of your nervous system, meaning that you're going to breathe no matter what. Yet, you can't survive without it. It's a part of you. It's part of every single cell in your being, and you can't see it, yet you rely on it for life itself. And I didn't allow everything that I can't see to guide my life. I was still obsessing and living in my analytical mind to control the outcome of every single aspect of my life. I didn't have a conversation if I hadn't orchestrated the entire dialogue in my head to make sure it was perfect, to make sure that I was coming out on top. I wanted to get what I wanted. I would dominate people by either intellectually having a discussion that talked them out of their no or yes, or emotionally reacting to talk them out of their no or yes. Now that lesson came much later, yet to see in my father's eyes that he knew I was at a fraction of my capacity because I had not let go to the unknowns, the infinite possibility of life, which is faith, which is the opposite of I know, which is letting go to the unknowns. I was unwilling to let go of the unknowns in life because I was too scared and he could see and sense that fear in me. So yes, it was immediate what I could see he felt and it has been a life education that I have been humbled by, meaning I have more to learn each and every day since. Um. Every time I, you share that Paul Check said that to you, um, about you being in your head and not in your heart, and then you talking about this being a part of that shift, it's always a surprise to me because you are um, the most in your heart person. Um, you're so heart led and so heart centered. Um, Do you want to talk about uh, what that process actually looked like? Shifting from head to heart. Yeah, I documented the first 300 days. Can't remember where that is. Maybe it's on Facebook or whatever it is. And I shared it with Paul and all the transformational stuff that happened. And then when you get to thousands of days, it's, it's, you realize the days don't matter. It's not that part of that achievement aspect of you making meaning into things that don't mean anything and allowing yourself to let go completely actually be instead of do. And if you're around people that do constantly and achieve constantly, then you think that's the only way around life to be seen, to be acknowledged. And, um, You can be disciplined. I think that's one of the first things that Paul said to me. He's like, I'm one of the most disciplined people I know. I was like, okay, yeah, we're from the same cloth. I get that. Yet, 
He's led by his heart. And that's the difference where I couldn't feel Paul's love for me. I could only feel his care once I had love for myself, which means I was able to slow down and feel, grieve, cry, be with the pain, be with the stories that are no longer true and be willing to accept the reality and the same energy of my dad about all forgiving until there's a drop of forgiveness in every single story that I had a reaction to. It was the foundational principle of my life of this shouldn't have happened. This was supposed to happen. This needed to happen for me to be okay, to be seen enough to belong. Once you tear all that down, now you're able to give it to yourself. And so that level of interdependence and creating safety for myself of feeling my own body, breathing, feeling all the feelings, not just trying to feel good or laugh or whatever it is I thought I needed uh, to be enough. You know, I'm just going to be transparent. It was the willingness to be sober. Yeah, I stopped drinking. That's a huge part of my story. Stopped drinking to my senior year to play college football. And my goal for myself was to never drink again until I played my first big bowl game. And I did that. Then I got drunker than 10 men. I <laughs> went to go have fun and thought I could do it all. And I couldn't. It's like the things that got me to where I wanted to be, I let go of because I was still in so much pain. The achievement never satisfied that itch and that chip on my shoulder that said, you don't belong and you're not enough. You're not a part of anything great because look at you. You're that cautionary tale that could be sent away from military academy and the whole town's talking about something must be wrong with you. And I wore that identity most of my life. And that's what I fed that sensational appetite that said you're unworthy. And so when I began to believe and feel worthiness in my body, I was able to differentiate a negative, unhealthy, obsessive, fear-based lie between an accepting, loving, compassionate, kind voice in my heart that said, be here now. Be in this moment. Your dad's dying and you don't even sense it. I'm telling you. That was the first time I'd ever followed my heart. But Paul had prepared me for those 300 days of meditation. Had me drive overnight to see my father. Had me have a drop of forgiveness until I got to that place. And that just set me up to actually for the transformation to really take place. My dad chose me as the last person to be with. And he faced death like a boss. And that's the greatest gift we can give ourselves and to all those around us by 
while we face death. We all think we're going to die, but we're all in the back of our heads still say, yeah, but not me. No one truly believes they're going to die or we wouldn't interact and treat ourselves and others the way we do. And the lies of my analytical mind that are getting in the way of me functioning from the heart were all fear. That's what a lie is. It's a fear of a consequence. It's the reason why I got so deep into my story and all the sequences of events is because that's what a consequence is. There's something that happens here and there's a story that's created from there. And then from that point, everything that happens is just something that deepens that wound. And then we're trying to hide that wound and mask it from ourselves and others. That's why we get in relationships from relationship to relationship, thinking that that's going to heal us. That's going to make things better. But we're just an open wound and someone just kind of bumps up against us. It's like a branch scraping a wound and we get angry and upset at them when it's really, hey, you're wounded. Too fast, too much, too soon happened to you as a child. And you never mended. You never showed attention. You never cared for in such a way where you could be with what happened. So you can be here in this moment. And that's that to me is living from my heart because that is still a daily process and seeing it in everybody else and having so much compassion because I can feel their wounding now. I can feel their wounding. And you can't give to someone else what you don't give to yourself. So if I was unable to function from my heart and heal my wounds and take responsibility. That means when I'm reacting all the time, it's because we're reacting because someone's rubbing up against our wounds. If I react, I'm like, oh, there's a wound there still. There's still, it's still a little bit raw. Okay. Well, my responsibility is to go breathe, be, love myself, and come back. That's responsibility. It's my ability to respond. Did I answer your question? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so when I met you, uh, formally, um, you, you were really deep in your grief. Yeah. It's still something that you're really in touch with and yeah. we'll share more about how that had a part of, um, me falling in love with you, uh, and, uh, when we share our story, but for now I want to, I wanted to, see if you could talk about, um, your relationship to grief, um, how your grief, cause it wasn't, uh, from what I understand, your grief didn't open up immediately after, um, the death of your father. So if you could share, um, your grief opening up and, uh, what that was like for you and also what the greatest gift that your grief gave to you was. Ooh, let me slow down. Okay. I'm going to reset everybody because this is a part of my story or my experience that is so very new. I feel, and when I've set across from Stephen Jenkinson, which I feel is probably the foremost in grief 
expert and working with, he calls it the death trade. We are grief illiterate. That's why I mentioned earlier, when you are injured, when you have a disconnect from someone, you're in a state of grief. You know, Jim Carrey talks about like, we're playing this role or this avatar that you're sick of playing, therefore you're depressed. And, you know, Paul Check would very simplify it like to a 12 year old talking to them saying, well, depression is, you know, your fear of something from your past being projected and put into tomorrow. And I, I'm more aware every day that the depression is from not able, not willing and not being taught how to grieve how to cry, how to cherish life so deeply and appreciate life as a gift and the spirit, which is your breath and expand your lungs every single day to the point of feeling overwhelmed with gratitude. You know, my dad wasn't perfect. I feel that he died of, of sadness. Never smoked a cigarette in his life, yet he died of a lung disease. My mom, shortly after, had stage three breast cancer and had both breasts removed, and I cared for her and her treatment. And so I was so deep in grief, feeling. And the real pain that I had from all of it the most pain I had is when I felt any friendship or someone that I had thought of as a friend wasn't present with me or created some kind of circumstance that took me away from my grief. I got so angry when life would take me away from feeling the pain because the pain was so beautiful because I had this healing, mending, loving relationship with my dad. And every single moment where we had an argument or a disconnect or had a whipping or whatever it is, I didn't care because one of his last conversations we ever had was dad. What's the difference between me taking my belt off and whipping my partner because I don't like the way they're behaving and that's the consequence for going against what I tell them to do and doing that to a child. I'm not trying to guilt you, dad. I feel that I can do it better as a father. I want you to be a part of that for me being better as a father. And that the point you're teaching me how to do it better and how I'm not guilting you. You didn't do anything wrong. But if it was done with love and I felt good about it and I thought it was healthy and healing, why are we still having this conversation? If I forgive you, yet I feel I don't want my son coming back to me 30 years later saying, you whipped me, man, and that sucked. Why'd you whip me out of anger? And he was able to stop and say, son, you're making sense. I feel what you're saying. For everybody out there that never had that conversation with their dad, with their parent. If your parents already passed and you didn't have those last moments that I did. I'm telling you right now, you don't have to have those last moments. 
a drop of forgiveness in every single circumstance that you still have an issue, anger, a problem, resentments towards until there's nothing left to forgive. Give them the opportunity to forgive themselves. Then you will mend it. Then you'll mend your heart. But do not rely on them to change for you to be okay. I just had a man reach out to me the other day wanted to do this work and reconnect with his father. And he does men's group and retreats and he's in his forties with a teenager. I need to love on him and say, man, you're doing the same thing to your son and you don't even see it. You have a disconnect with your teenage son and he feels like he doesn't belong and he's on the outside. And now you're expecting your father to change for you to be okay. That is the definition of suffering. We suffer because our reality does not align with our stories in our head. You got to debunk all your stories. That's just another way to cope and get away from actually feeling and grieving all those stories. That's why I love origin stories. You can immediately hear if someone's telling it from a healed perspective. Or a victim. I played the role of victim most of my life and I look like the hero. Or I look like the wolf and the villain. But I was just a hurt kid. Oh yeah, you got 50,000 people loving because you just lit someone up on the football field. But I hated myself. I was disconnected. I didn't love myself enough to stop and see like, look dude, look what you're doing. You're in so much pain and turmoil. You're taking a handful of painkillers because you're, you just don't want to feel anymore. Addiction. We do something that feels good, yet it has a negative consequence, and we can't stop. Why? Because whatever it is that you were doing to feel good means that you weren't, you weren't willing to feel all the other stuff. That wound is just way too raw. And no one's taught you how to actually grieve. One of my dearest friends that I had on the podcast, after her fiance died of a drug overdose, she went to Israel. And in that culture, they teach you You're a sick person when you're grieving. Your job is to be taken care of. You sleep, you rest, you eat, you meditate, you rest, you sleep, you eat. That's it. We are so grief illiterate. I still am very much so. I'm a baby when it comes to all this. And baby, when you and I met, I realized I hadn't danced for years. And you sent me a link. What's his name? The Martin Prechtel. Martin Prechtel. Okay, I want to make sure I get his name correct. He has a three-part series on grief. I think it's um, Grief and Praise. It's from the book... um... The Smell of Dust on Rain. The Smell of Dust on Rain. Amazing speaker. I'm really excited to 
come across his, him one day, just like I did Stephen Jenkinson, because um, it reminded me that we praise and we give gratitude to the life that we have now, to the beauty we have in our relationships that are right in front of us, and the, the bodies we've been given, to the air in our lungs, to the love we're able to make with those closest. And the grief, oh, because you miss, I miss my dad. I love him. I love the man he, he was, and I love the man he is in my life now. And Stephen Jenkinson said this to me. He's like, maybe you didn't bring, your life didn't bring the best parts of your dad out. I was like, ooh, what a rough way to say that. Just get my attention. Because I had a story that he was supposed to be someone else other than who he was. And he was an amazing man. And this is what I'm going to leave everybody with, especially around grief. The wounds of your parents are your gift to heal within yourself. And if you do not accept that their wounds is yours, you will not grow and you are passing it on to your children. A person leaves, a good person leaves an inheritance to their children's children. That was something that my grandfather had that I have at my altar to see each day. And what you want to leave your children and your children's children Take on their wounds as yours to heal as a gift to yourself and your children. Otherwise, it's their job. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about the, uh, you're still very committed to dancing. Yeah. Um, I know it's something dance. <laughs> um, me and the kids have danced since uh, they were born. I danced with them every morning, and um, there wasn't a there wasn't really a reason other than I felt like um, the way we start our day will shape our day, and also like um, I wanted them to be able to look back and be like, man, we had some pretty crummy times or crummy days. And then like, we still danced yeah. or maybe even we felt better after we danced and it gives them this feeling of like, um, somewhat like emotion before emotion, but also like, um, we can dance alongside our pain or we can dance alongside whatever we're going through, um, and feel a shift through our movement. Um, that's where our commitment came from. And, um, I remember, I remember when we talked about like a future partner, um, in the home, I remember soul specifically saying like, and he'll dance with us. And so it was really cool to see, um, soul. <laughs> it was really cool to see that you already had that commitment. Um, 
It wasn't something that we had to like invite you into, like it was something already in your life. I'm curious what in that Martin Prechtel teaching um, inspired you to start that commitment to dance. And um, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fun way to count how many days we've been together. It is fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because before we met, you sent me that like the day before we met mm-hmm. and I had listened to that YouTube clip, the three part series mm-hmm. right after my dad's death. And then it, I was had another wave of grief that was upon me. And it, that's the greatest gift that you can actually realize and be present enough to realize like, oh, this is grief because usually we see it as the depression or we see it as anxiety or we're afraid about our finances or we're afraid when really we're not grieving. We're not grieving. That's, that's just, we're focusing. You know, I recognize when I paid off my debt from everything that I've been creating and all my programs. And then the fear was still there. Well, I had a story that it was the debt. No, it's just something my mind was making up for me not to be present with. And when I listened to his three part series again, and then think about praising my dad was terrified of dancing during my brother's wedding. One of my cousins pulled him up on the dance floor I don't want to cry saying this. You think about a man that's so powerful that was voted by his peers as one of the top sports physicians in North America. Given that award, one of the most powerful human beings I'd ever come across, yet he was terrified of dancing. And I saw him looking at me out of the corner of his eye and I could see this child in him. It was scared to dance. In my background with dancing, I mean, okay, Military Academy, LaVar and I would go on leave to like, oh, we were going to leave to like DC. And that's back in the 90s when DC was pretty dodgy. And uh, the only place we get into with like fake IDs or without fake IDs was uh, gay clubs. And so they would serve us. And uh, so I would be with all my friends, which were all black. And so I had this, I don't know if you, do you appropriate a culture when you're submerged within the culture? I don't know if this is that what Elvis Presley did. Um, if you're, that's the only culture that, you know, this is your family. And so, uh, <laughs> I watched, you know, get in a gay club, watching gay guys dance. They're really good at dancing. Watch all, you know, my black friends are really great at dancing. And, um, I, you could say emulate, but like I came up with my own style and then backpacking all over the world. Uh, I danced, but you know, Paul Chet getting me into Tai Chi. That was when really I felt the flow of energy through my body and dance and just transformed my movement and my feeling, feeling is one thing moving to be seen and then moving to express. I don't think I've ever said that out loud. That was the difference. And I listening to that three part series could feel my dad's energy in me and what he left me dying in my arms. And I, and I had this feeling like, dad, we're going to dance together every single day. 
I know he loved watching me play football. I know he loved watching me run track. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier when I was talking about track, but working so hard, but you know, I eventually became a, I never lost a 300 meter race that senior year. And I was a state champion in the 300 hurdles and two other events. And he wasn't a fast guy. He was a tough guy in the football field and feeling now I can feel his love and excitement watching me compete when he did come down and see me, see my races. And I would never allow myself to feel it. His, him being proud of me. I wouldn't allow my, because I had a story of resentment that kept me from, kept, kept me from letting him off the hook. Because I wasn't willing to grieve. Because I wasn't really taught the true essence of Christianity, of forgiveness. And so he dances with me every single day and we put a smile on our faces and I feel his energy and he feels mine and we play. There's no attachment to the outcome. And I've so many times, if anybody out there, I'm, I'm at DRJUDD um, on Instagram. I have like no followers. and i i've questioned many times what am i doing and always maybe i'm on barton springs or uh the other day with my buddies i just had a very i want to give a shout out to opie's family my friend opie from college just passed and my friends in boulder all getting together tomorrow and i want to send his family love you know, they're grieving so hard. He's such a great man. And my buddy told me yesterday, he was like, man, I look forward to seeing your your dance video every single day. And I put that prayer out every single time I post a grief dance video. Is I wanted to touch one person's life to know no matter how bad you're hurting, how much you're in pain, the story you have of betrayal that you don't belong. I want to let you know that you belong. You can reach out to me directly. DM me. I got time, whatever. I'll give you time. You deserve that. We all deserve that. To know that you, you matter, that you're loved. That you're cared for. I've had so many people close to me take their lives. I had one of my dearest friends that left me a note. I was in the military academy before he took his life. I don't know what I would have done differently then. I know what I do differently now. And many friends in college football has taken their life and I still stay in contact with some of those parents, especially a father that is in so much pain. And if you're struggling out there, 
And I've been there constantly contemplating, why are you here? If I could just push a button to check it all out. And I just want to remind you, you matter. Please know you matter. We need you here. You probably need to regulate your nervous system because it's so shaken by a wound. And your nervous system is specific to you as your fingerprint. And so I'm not going to have arrogance to tell you that I know what you need. I'm just going to tell you I'm here for you. You're loved. I got your back. Stay with us. You're a good man. You're a great woman. Mm-hmm. You're a brilliant one for seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for dancing. I'm reaping all the benefits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My magic mic moments. <clears throat> yeah, go get the kids. We do need to pick up the little people, everybody. Um, Yaya and Soul are going to be, uh, yeah. Where are they going to be? Well, I mean, that's the thing with those little personalities. You don't know. Soul's always going to have a smile on his face, everybody. So you see him dancing with me. He is, he's a cuddle bug and a hugger. And uh, Yaya, she has, that little girl has one of the most unique personalities that I feel it is my job and my privilege and my honor to explore every single moment I'm with her and ask big questions and just let her know that she's heard like any human being, man, what she is teaching me every single day about myself and what each individual needs to be heard and just telling someone no can really be destructive to their personal development Especially when you're trying to teach them how to how to have value in their no, because I feel probably most people that grow up and say yes to anything is because they're told no so often without a reason or even a hug or even being heard and just being abruptly saying no, which takes away their sovereignty. Which takes away their ability to respond because you're reacting towards them and you're teaching them to react all the time. And so usually they're obsessing about how they can gain the illusion of control. And so then they're going to compulsively just do stuff and say yes to everything. So if you can't tell, I've studied child development a bit and I, I, um, this is where I put my money where my mouth is and, and, um, I'm able to relive my childhood by witnessing those two little beautiful souls and dance with them. So when you see me in the videos picking up Yaya, usually Yaya's had a moment of, or Jaya, we say Yaya because soul couldn't pronounce Jaya when he was a child. 
usually I'm picking up and hugging. So, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, because she's over the day before the day begins. (laughs) (laughs) So we're working on how you express yourself. Uh, not that she needs, she has to wake up as positive, but she doesn't make it everyone's problem. And what a thing to learn as a child uh, before you become an adult or a young adult. And how do I love her and say like, Hey, request of me, if you want to hug on me and you need to express your pain or your anger, your frustrations, I'm here for it. But you do not demand that of me. Just like I don't demand it of, of anyone else. And I, I feel that she's teaching me how to be responsible as I'm teaching her how to be responsible. So one of the many reasons you're our answered prayer. Mm-hmm. As you are mine. Love you. I love you. The kid's coming back here. <laughs> All right. So uh Jade says that <laughs> constantly one of the first times um we were to <laughs> We were together and the kids were at school and I'm getting used to, I was doing work. I was doing things for my, um, my licensure as a counselor and I was getting my credits back up. And, um, as when my dad died, I, um, I stopped seeing people. I thought it was unethical to work with patients. And so I backed away and allowed my license to lapse and I was creating programs and doing my podcast and then I, once I felt that I was, was healthy and um, ethical to work with other people's pain, that I've been in touch with enough of my pain, that I was reinstating my license and I was in the process of doing that. And I was um, in Jade's home and I hadn't got really the, the structure of how the day flowed. And so Jade was going to go pick up the kids. And I didn't know if that meant she was going to take them to the playground or the pool or what. And I was like, so are they coming back? Here, <laughs> she's like, yeah, John, they're coming back here. It's gonna be loud. Welcome <laughs> to the jungle. Yeah, it's a jungle and it's a trip. Um, and uh, that's what I pray for most people that are in grief that have families that you really are willing to express your pain with your family, and they're able to see you grieve, and that you don't feel like you have to become cold or stay late at work or keep away your emotions from those closest to you. I really play that you let it all out. And the I'm going to say this lastly, the people that don't have family, that don't have a partnership, you're not alone. You belong. I love you. Reach out to me. I got you. I don't care. I'll get on the phone with you. I got you. And what I say is I don't care. I mean, if 20 minutes out of my day talking to you and getting to know you to let you know that you have someone that cares means I don't care about that time. It's worth it to me. I'm willing to give you that. You deserve that of me. To know that uh, someone out there cares. All right. I'm a good man, baby. Thank you for listening to part one of Dr. Judd Johns. Stay tuned for part two. But we got what it takes for the cycle to break. Revolution lives in me. I belong. I belong. I belong.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.